The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Thank you, Pat and Praise Team. That's awesome. All right, well, if you have your Bibles or you want to follow along in the bulletin, we're continuing this wonderful story of Jonah. Lots of action. Bruce just gave us a, a good overview. And um, if you remember, Jonah was running from God. And we have Jonah's repentance in the fish. And we have Nineveh's revival. And today is Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's revival. Certainly he'll respond favorably. Nothing could be, make a preacher happier than to know that his message have been so well received, right? Well, let's pick up the story. I'm actually going to start at, at Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites repenting, that they turned, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this... Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went, <clears throat> went out of the city, sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat, on, sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much caddo. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would search our hearts, test us and know our anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I titled the message, Jonah's Vacation. You see, Jonah was taking some early retirement here in chapter 4. Apparently, he's found some beachfront property in verse 5, and now he can just chill out and see what God is going to do with his enemy. He probably made a little calendar where he's counting down, you know, and he gets to mark off the days, 40, 39, 38, 37, 36, 35, and he's, he's waiting for God to just rain down the brimstone, and bring judgment on Nineveh. And Jonah 
is not wanting to affect change or be a part of the solution in Nineveh. And as Bruce brought out, he doesn't see that the problem is himself. He sees the problems over there. He doesn't see the problem is over here. And we could say the story of Jonah is like a cartoon. You know, the story is given to us through this literary satire and human humor, and yet the butt of the joke is on the writer himself. And yet he's able to poke fun at himself because he's able to come to terms with God. He is going to accept God's sovereign right to do what he wants because we have the story. And so we can assume that, that Jonah did indeed repent. But what we see in this chapter is God is in charge. I mean, verse 6, verse 7, or verse 8 should tell you that. Who appointed the plant? God. Who appointed the worm? God. Who appointed the scorching east wind? God. God is sovereign over everything that happens in the book of, of Nineveh, from, or the story of Jonah, even from the fish to the vomiting of, of Jonah back on the, on the dry land. We see God is in charge, and yet Jonah wants to be in charge. Jonah thinks his word is better. He even tells God that basically, I mean, this is my word over your word, justifying his disobedience. This is why I disobeyed to begin with. He's angry at God's lack of anger. That's what he's angry about. There's a great irony in that, isn't there? He's angry that God is not bringing his justice and bringing the hammer down on Nineveh. And so he's angry at the lack of destruction, and he's angry then at God's destruction of his shade. Jonah's like a little kid in the grocery store who doesn't get the candy bar he wants. And then he holds his parents hostage until they meet his terrorist demands. And Jonah's having this big pity party, and he's all by himself. It's just bizarre. I mean, imagine reading this about Billy Graham, George Whitfield, D.L. Moody, or Charles Haddon Spurgeon, or the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine them angry and angry enough to die and, and articulating a prayer of Prayer number one and prayer number two here are both prayers to please let me out. I want to die because these people are repenting and you're not bringing judgment. Can you imagine any of these great preachers praying anything like that? It's just unfathomable. And so Jonah, what we see is he really despised his foreign neighbors. He had contempt for them. He's basically like Clint Eastwood in the first half of Gran Torino. He does not like the changing neighborhood, does not like these people, and doesn't want anything to do with them. And yet we're told with God's heart in the Bible that God has joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so the whole chapter of Luke 15 is all about joy. I lost my sheep. I found my sheep. What do you do when you find something you lost? You call your friends and you say, rejoice with me for something I lost. I found it. And then there's great joy in heaven, the angels. And then even with the, uh, I lost the coin. I found my coin. I call the friends, rejoice with me. And they rejoice. And then we have a son. I've lost my son. I've found my son. Will you rejoice with me? And this elder brother, here's this music and dancing that we already read. And he doesn't want anything to do with his brother's repentance. And that was all about what the Pharisees didn't like, that 
Jesus was attracting sinners to himself. They didn't like it. It's kind of like when D.L. Moody was preaching. There were people that complained. And one of the complaints was, they said, this, he can't be legit. He can't be legit because all he's doing is bringing in the riffraff. That was the complaint. He's bringing in the riffraff. Praise God. He's bringing in the riffraff. And yet, you know, Jonah is more upset that he wants this continual shade over his head. Charles Spurgeon said that that God had to send Jonah to kindergarten. He had to learn by the gourd, and he learned by the worm, and he learned by the vehement east wind. They were a sort of kindergarten school to which the childlike spirit of Jonah had to go. God had a specific object lesson for Jonah to learn for his misplaced affections. And what that means, children, is that he was happy about the wrong things and sad and mad about the wrong things. It should have been just the opposite. And so the idea here is that little things please little minds. And all that pleased, the only time Jonah was happy, is exceedingly glad, was when he got what he wanted. And what he wanted was just some shade over his head. And when God took out his shade, his world was so small, his soul was so shriveled, that when he didn't get that, he asked God to take him out, that he was angry enough to die. Well, this is a telltale sign of an idol at work in our hearts. If we tell others that my life is no longer worth living, if this is taken away, or if we tell ourselves, if I ever lose this, then my life wouldn't be worth living, then you're living for an idol. If you find yourself saying that, just take my life, then you not only need to repent for saying that, but you got to go deeper and say, I was, what was the idol of that I need to repent of? Tim Keller puts it like this in The Prodigal Prophet. He says, how can we identify these default settings that can so distort our lives as they did Jonah's? Look at your unanswered prayers and dreams. When God doesn't fulfill them, do you struggle with disappointment, but then go on? Or do you feel that to me, death is better than life? The difference can tell you if you're dealing with a normal life, a normal love in your life, or an idol. Whatever you live for actually owns you. You don't really control yourself. Whatever you live for and love the most controls you. And so Jonah's sin was, too, was twofold as it came to his affections. He's got a disordered love for comfort, and that was his idolatry, but he has a lack of love for his neighbors. And he should have been rejoicing, and instead, He's angry. So what if God answered your prayers to bring revival in Gaithersburg, Germantown, Rockville, Clarksburg, Damascus only? If God brings revival, but what if he doesn't bring it at our church, but through other churches? Or or churches that aren't reformed, or churches that may not look like us. Would you be excited about that? Would you condemn it? Would you criticize? Would you concede, or would you celebrate? Where are you on that spectrum? Because here Jonah's refusing to go into the party. He isn't celebrating. He isn't conceding. He's criticizing and condemning. Well, to drive that home a little bit more for us, I think think we would say, well, I hope we would rejoice in that. But I think where it kind of hits home for us is is more on a a deeper level. I'll illustrate it like this. I was meeting with a guy once some years ago, and his life was a real mess before he came to Christ. 
he had a serious drinking problem. His drinking a problem affected his work, it affected his marriage, and it even affected him getting in trouble with the law. And as the Lord laid him low, he repented and he got radically saved. And his life began to make dramatic changes. He was no longer the man he was and he was on fire for the Lord. His spouse was always the righteous one in the marriage. She was always the glue keeping it together. Now, how do you think she responded when her husband all of a sudden got radically saved? Was she celebrating, conceding, criticizing, or condemning? Well, it exposed her. She was no longer the righteous one. And she stopped going to church. And she was enjoying a self-pity party and self-righteousness. And she couldn't handle that now she was the one in need of a savior. You see, this is how the heart of sin sometimes works and we have to root it out every time you see your flesh responding in one of these ways. One of my favorite preachers and theologians is Dale Ralph Davis, who probably not many of you know. He's not real well known. He's written some Old Testament commentaries and he planted a church in Westminster, Maryland years ago. The church is actually not around today. And he used to teach at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. Well, he, he shares a story in one of his sermons of how he left RTS and a little while later, the president of RTS wrote him a really nice note. And in the note, the president went on and on about how God was blessing the seminary in new and wonderful ways. And Dale Ralph Davis said, he said he had a hard time rejoicing because I didn't want anything terrible to happen to them. I just wanted them to bleed a little in my absence. You see, that's really the heart of a Jonah syndrome. That's really the heart of the elder brother. And he had to repent of that, realizing, wait a minute, why is that? You see, when you hear all of a sudden you're not missed, and God's blessing somebody else and is using their gifts and they're thriving. This week I met with someone and, and they're no longer attending our, our church and he's telling me he really likes the preaching at his new church. And I had to just die to myself and say, praise, praise the Lord. Even though part of my flesh wanted to say, so you like his sermons better than mine? You see, there's a Jonah in all of us. And so... When uh, Bruce, Bruce was right, I, he, he took, took a little bit of the thunder here this morning. So uh, 2002, in July, I preached this text when I came in and auditioned, so to speak, you know, where the church votes on you right after you preach, so it better be a good one. Well, this was the text that I preached on uh, in Jonah 4, and I keep coming back. There are certain texts you come back to because this is one of these texts that continues to expose us. Do I love people? Or do I just want to get out in the country and get away from people? Do I love the changing community and culture that's happening in this area? Do I love that God is bringing all the nations here? Do I love the opportunities that this presents for us? Well, I think if we're honest, we all have to repent at times because there's times where we just like our little, our little garden, our little garage and our little projects and all of a sudden something comes down and destroys our little project and our little garden and we're really upset about this little 
vine that was providing the shade over our head. And God's trying to get Jonah's attention with something so much bigger about this great city. And you see, Jonah at that point is he's not living by grace. He isn't thankful for his salvation. He's no longer melted by the mercies of God. And as a result, he has a contempt for the lost rather than a compassion for the lost. Jonah, you see, there's a lot of these parables. You know, at the beginning of this series, I was saying if you run through the elder brother, the good Samaritan, and the elder brother and the prodigal son, if you run those through as kind of a grid to, to read Jonah, you get a pretty good idea of Jonah. Well, I can think of three more parables that we should consider if you're reading Jonah. Can you think of any other parables that like, that's Jonah. Like how about the parable of of the the workers? What do do the first hour workers say? And you remember, if you remember the story, this generous landowner keeps hiring more workers. And even when they don't, you know, they need to work more than he does, but he keeps going and send them out in the field and they all agree to work for a denarius. And at the end of the day, he starts with the last one first, the ones who only worked an hour, and he's paying them all a denarius. And when he gets back to the first hour workers, what do they think when they get a denarius? They are mad. And they, they say, we have borne the burden and the heat of the day. And basically, we are so much better than those other workers. And what does the parable, the kicker of the parable is, do I not have the right? Do I not have the right to give to who I want to give to? Or is your eye evil because I'm good? That's Jonah. Is Jonah doesn't want to, he doesn't want to submit to the sovereignty of God to bless whom he wants to bless. And if somebody comes in after us, at the end of their life, praise God. We should always be rejoicing. That's, one, that's another parable. Well, how about the, the, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector? I mean, why does Jesus give the parable? Because they look down on contempt at others. And so Jesus gives this parable. And what does the Pharisee say? I thank you that I am not like these other people. These Ninevites, you know, these people that are just rotten, right? And then we have this tax collector who beats on his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's kind of like what you see in Jonah 3, where you've got Ninevites basically beating on their chest, putting on sackcloth and ashes and repenting and, and asking God to be merciful to them. But we've got Jonah as the Pharisee. So you see a lot of these parables they, they, a lot of them will run through the grid of Jonah. Well, Eugene Peterson said, one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes in us is grammatical. We move from we instead of I, instead of my, or our instead of my and us instead of, of me. And basically the gospel changes our individualistic thinking. It connects us to the body and we begin to think about others rather than our own. And so we, we start to see this idea that when one part suffers, the whole suffers. For in one spirit, we were baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we're all made a drink of one spirit. We are one body. And Jonah has now disconnected himself from the body. He's used his gift 
And yet we see that his gift is now just a noisy gong and a clashing cymbal because he hasn't any love for anybody in the whole story. And so he doesn't love people. And so, and then he pulls away and the proverb that says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. The body has a way of keeping us honest and it causes us continually to examine our hearts as we spur one another on and encourage each other and exhort each other. And so Jonah doesn't love the people, but particularly those outside of the covenant. He doesn't love his four neighbors. And he even says, he gives a tip off in Jonah 4 verse 2. He says, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? In my country. You could say Jonah's racist, prejudiced, nationalist. He wants God's blessing on his country, his people, but not on anybody else. Harvey Kahn, who professor at Westminster Seminary in his book, Doing Justice, Preaching Grace, he says racism is a part of the mythology that inhibits our message. He says not the white-hooded kind that burns, that burns crosses on lawns, but the sophisticated variety that runs in shock from a changing neighborhood to the mission compound security of the suburbs or the country. I had to repent recently as I Every year they do the, the fireworks now right near our house in downtown Gaithersburg and, and it, it just becomes like a big traffic jam, you know, and, and we actually had to take somebody home and we had to drive around all this stuff and I'm looking and it, everybody is so much younger than me and nobody looks like me. It is a changing community and all I wanted to do was get home so I could go to sleep and there's just crowds of people and I really wasn't having compassion on them. I was actually feeling kind of exposed that I was out of my comfort zone and not in control. And the very next day was the day that I shared last week of the lunch that I had of going to a restaurant in the same city of Gaithersburg and seeing none of the people I'd seen the night before. And they're all white, 55 and up, and they're rude to me. And the thought was, oh my, how I would never want our church to become like that, where it doesn't seem like they're in touch with their community. We have to rethink who we are as Shady Grove. Do we exist to escape or to hibernate from the world? Do we just exist to gather? The church exists to gather, but we exist to scatter. We come together to recharge our batteries, but then we're sent back out into the world. Harvey Kahn, again in his book, he says, one cannot be a missionary church and continue insisting that the world must come to the church and continue insisting that the world must come to the church on the church's terms. It must become a go structure. And it can only do that when its concerns are directed outside itself towards the poor, the abused, and the oppressed. The church must recapture its identity as the only organization in the world that exists for the sake of its non-members. You see, if we love the city like God loves the city, then even we we pity a rebellious city, even like Nineveh. And look what the Lord did. He had mercy on Nineveh. Our church exists so that we would be a blessing to the community, to our city, so that we can uh, seek its shalom and seek the shalom of the city. There's lots here for us to think about, but as you turn this and you think about in light of Christ and we see that Jonah 
leaves the city to root against it. Jonah is a direct contrast to Jesus. Jesus, too, looked over the city, didn't he? And he longed for something different. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. Jonah longed for judgment, but Jesus longed for repentance. Who are we like? Both Jonah and Jesus went outside the city. Jonah went outside the city to wait for damnation. Jesus went outside the city to receive damnation and to die for our salvation. George MacLeod, I've used this quote before, he says, I simply argue that the church, that the cross should be raised at the center of the marketplace as well as a steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town's garbage heap, at a crossroads so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, at the kind of place, kind of place cynics talk smut and thieves curse and the soldiers grumble, because this is where he died. And this is what he died for, and this is what he died about. And this is where the church ought to be, what the church ought to be about. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't commute from heaven. You see, he dwelt among us. He knew the garbage heap. He died next to the garbage dump outside the city. And so Hebrews 13 tells us to offer hospitality to who? To strangers. And then it concludes with, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you our hearts. We ask that, Lord, you would make us more and more like you, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate. Weed out these little loves and idols out of our heart. Help us to love our neighbors, our coworkers, and all the people that you're bringing into our life. And help us not to shrink back, but to go forward in faith with courage. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.